The programming produced at KREB is so diverse. It covers such a wide range of subjects and ideas. I didn't think of it so much as something that as material that could be used at other radio stations, but that it might serve as, as an idea base for showing the variety that can be done with radio. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Riesmandel. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Klein. It's good to be here on Radio Survivor talking about community radio, podcasting, college radio, and... Community media. Community media in, in general. general. Yeah. And today we're going to talk about an archive project that is attempting to take the history of a community radio station that no longer exists, but was... Pivotal, pivotal, really, in the development of community radio in the United States. So many voices, so many hours of of uh, the radio day and week, and they come into the station. They they give a, a real organic oral history of the time and place that that these communities are on the air, and then they're gone for all forever, unless some someone with foresight, rec- you know, made a tape. Of this show, either the producer in the room or some fan out there in the world made a tape, and those—that's how we know what went on all these decades of community radio. So we're going to be talking about the archive of community radio station KRAB, which we'll be calling Crab, spanning the '60s, '70s, and '80s. Yes, not the whole thing, but a lot of it. But a lot of those decades in Seattle, Washington, and uh, wow, my, my, you know that just the idea of all that radio uh, being being both lost and then found again is really wonderful. Yes, and and Crab, as we'll call it, um, is a station that's, that's sort of foundational in the development of community radio in the United States. It's one of the first stations to exist outside of the Pacifica network. Mm. Pacifica being where community radio was really birthed in the United States with uh, the Bay radio Area, station, Los KPFA. Angeles, New York, Houston, Washington, D.C. Yeah, and at that point, I think uh, we only have three stations in the Pacifica. L.A., New LA, York, New York and, 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 and the Bay Area. And the Bay Area and Berkeley. Um and so it started in Seattle, and it was co-founded by Lorenzo Malam, who people who know their community radio history sh- will know that name. He authored a book, Sex and Broadcasting, and he helped. He took money around uh, the, the West Coast and helped to found stations all over the place. Um, and uh, in fact, the stations that, that he founded were collectively known as the Crab Nebula, named for Crab, which was the first station he really helped to co-found. A place where people uh, could come and make radio. I yeah. mean, it was really, um, it's so hard to get to wrap your head around the, the difference between this place on the airwaves and every other kind of radio station. Uh, especially at the A real time. standout. Yeah, yeah, especially so in the 1960s. We'll hear some of that, why it stood out so much and how it stood out. And... Crab connects up with community radio KBOO KBOO here in Portland, Oregon, where Eric and I uh, record the show. Uh, we talked about KBOO's 50th anniversary yes, just a few episodes ago on podcast number 130. We'll have uh, – you will direct you there in our show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. In fact, KBOO was – Co-founded also by Lorenzo Milam. He helped, actually, basically the people in, in Portland to found the station back in 1968. So initially, uh, when KBU went on the air, it was repeating uh, oh. programming from Crab. Back when Portland, Oregon was just some kind of uh, 
little brother satellite to Seattle, Washington. <laughs> Don't tell it I to suppose. Portlanders. Yeah. <laughs> Don't tell it to Portlanders. Uh, then by 1972, uh, KBU uh, was owned by a separate independent Locally based nonprofit here in Portland and was completely independent of Crab. But for some time in between, it was repeating programming from well, Seattle as I, Station. As I learned from this interview that you recorded with Chuck Ranch, uh, that there were there was a um, a, a tape brigade uh, of where where Crab and other stations would record uh, shows. And then uh, the tape would be sent in the mail. So I'm. It's I'm called sure bicycling tapes. But the basic principle is that that they would send tapes in the mail, yeah. and 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 it would be ferried from station to station to station to station. And maybe, as we mentioned in the interview, they would come back to the station where they originated. I, I once heard an urban legend that is worth repeating because it's relevant to today's episode of Radio Survivor. That back in the days where B movies were the main form of video media, of moving picture media. The B-movies would travel from from big cities to smaller cities all the way in, in, through a chain of theaters and then end up uh, in Alaska where they'd make their last stop, like whatever it was, 15 months after they were new. And then from Alaska, from that theater, they would go out the door and end up in the snow in the tundra. And that was one way that, <laughs> that all of these B-movies that were considered disposable at the time were preserved that some of them were still in the ice. I don't know if that's true or not, but it relates to today's interview about crab and its uh, radio material being preserved uh, sort of by accident and still being around, or not by accident, by design by some people who were not working in a grand concert of a plan, but um, individuals doing what they thought was the right thing to do, which was preserving uh, some piece of radio that they found important from their past. And so Chuck Range, he was a volunteer at Crab uh, and served in many different capacities during its lifespan. He has now undertaken this effort, an independent effort that lots and lots of people are helping and contributing by by uh, contributing the the, resort, the the artifacts that they have, whether they be tapes or printed materials, etc. He's digitizing them and putting them up online for posterity at the Crab Archives which is his website where he's he's doing all this. And when I learned about this, I wanted to dive in deep. It, it's a topic we talk about quite a bit here at Radio Survivor, preserving our community media heritage, whether it's community radio, it could be public access TV, or even in the modern age, it can be podcasts. Podcasting which, or blogs. Which you know everyone thinks, oh, everyone's got this file, so of course it gets preserved. But if no one makes that effort, the person who ends their podcast today and sort of forgets about it and stops their hosting, it could be gone tomorrow. And there are people like Chuck Range who are helping to preserve this history. So he tells us a little bit more about the station, his involvement there, and why and how he has uh, started to archive these tremendous assets. Yeah, archive them in public so people can find them and enjoy them, not just archive them in a vault somewhere underneath a university. And after we talk with Chuck... Uh, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about some big news regarding the nation's largest owner of radio stations, iHeartMedia, the former Clear Channel. First, we're going to hear that interview with Chuck about his beloved crab in Seattle, Washington. On the line from Seattle, we are talking with Chuck Ranch, and he is the man behind the Crab Archives. And Crab, K-R-A-B, is a community radio station that was in Seattle, Washington. And Chuck has been assembling 
artifacts associated with the station and making them accessible online at a website. Thank you for joining us on Radio Survivor, Chuck. Thank you. So, Chuck, I don't need you to give me a complete history of the radio station, CRAB, K-R-A-B, but can you give us just a quick sense for how long the station was on the air there in Seattle? Well, it went on the air in 62, the end of 62, and went off the air in April of 1984, so it was about 22 years. And going on the air in 1962, I mean, that makes it one of the very first community radio stations in the country following closely on the heels of the sort of the founding of the Pacifica Foundation, really. Right, exactly. The founder of the station, Lorenzo Milam and Gary Margison and the first music director, Robert Garfius, had all been volunteers at KPFA. So that is both where they met each other and developed an interest in community stations or stations like the what Pacifica was doing. And how long were you involved there at CRAB? Uh, I was there in one role or another for a long time from near the beginning. I think I actually volunteered in 64 until three years after it went off the air, so until 1987. When so I finally finally left the board of directors. So there was still a board of directors. There was still some sort of station operation going on when it left the air. Well, it left the air with the hopes of being able to return to the air on another frequency. I see. The station was was functionally bankrupt. I mean, it was on a commercial frequency. So the hope was, but that by selling it. This is going to all sound familiar to anybody following the Pacifica story of recent years. The hope of selling the station, we'd raise enough money that it would enable us to buy or acquire a non-commercial frequency that we could run at less money than it cost us to run KRAB. Because you had a, a frequency north of 92 megahertz on the dial, the commercial band as it's known, it has more uh, market value. You thought perhaps the proceeds from selling that license to a commercial entity would allow you to acquire a license south of 92 megahertz, where ostensibly, at least at the time in the 1980s, it would have been less expensive. Yes, that was the plan. Eventually, the foundation that uh, was the licensee, which does still exist, was able to get a frequency, but not in metropolitan Seattle, much to the disappointment of the majority of the KRAB listeners. That station continues to be on the air today. I think they went on in 90 or 89 or 90, and they've been on the air since then, KSER. They're located in Everett, Washington. And they're, unfortunately, they're signal does not penetrate Seattle very well. You've put this archive online, the Crab Archives. Mm-hmm. When did you start that effort? I started it at the end of 2012. And it's sort of, I, I wouldn't say it's developed a life of its own because it pretty much relies on me. But it's grown considerably in the, the sense of I started with very little in terms of artifacts, in terms of Uh, recordings and documents, but I've gathered lots at this point. And what motivated you to start this? What, What went off in your brain that said, you know, I need to start 
recording this history or putting this history out somewhere where it's accessible to the world? Well, I guess in a sense I have to digress back to that 1984 when the station went off the air. For those of us that had been associated with it over the years, and even some that had come to it later, that was a traumatic time. Even though I was, for a period of that time, the treasurer of the foundation, and I was the president of the foundation. So, I mean, I was right in the middle of it. By the time the sale actually happened, I was no longer president, but I was still on the board. It was still a disappointment to me. I mean, I could understand the need. Uh, We didn't really have any choice. We didn't want to go through bankruptcy, which would have forced a sale, and we wanted to have it under our control. But it took me a lot of years to get over that. Uh, I left Seattle, went to California uh, for a while, and and in a sense, I sort of got over the the pain, and I started thinking about the station. But I had this friend that liked to send me articles, should articles appear in the media, talking about the station. And when I realized that these articles were all being written by people that weren't born when the station left the air, I thought, well, something needs to happen to make sure that the truth, or at least my version of the truth, needed to be out there. And that's how it started. That people could learn most about the station by being able to hear the programs and see examples of what the station produced, like the program guides and other sorts of curious documents. Tell me a little bit more about what's in the archive. You said that you have some some program recordings, you have program guides. What other sorts of things can people hope to find? There's graphics in terms of it's like posters, flyers. One of the pieces that I'm working on is the, the law firm that represented KREB to the FCC in Washington, D.C. no longer exists. They were absorbed into a larger uh, firm of communications attorneys. The law firm that represented the station was Haley Bader and Potts, which was also a supporter of the NFCB. At one point on a lark, I mean, I was trying to run down copies of program guides. I contacted one of the surviving attorneys from the, the old firm and asked him whether they had copies of anything I mean, I knew that at one point they did. They have copies of the program guides produced by the station. But what he came back with is, well, the firm's archives were in storage and that if I wanted them, they would make them accessible. Hmm. So working with the foundation, which was really their client, I got the archives from, from Haley Bader and Potts. I digitized them. And I'm gradually putting up pieces of it that seem to, I think, illuminate the history of the station. What sort of things would a law firm have? I find this to be curious, actually. Uh, I wouldn't expect necessarily the law firm would have a a ton of things. So can you tell me a little bit more? Well, um, the license copies of the license applications, I mean, these are all documents filed with the FCC. 
they'd have copies of all of those. So license application, renewal applications, any citations, anything from any kind of communication with the FCC uh, would generally be reviewed by the law firm. Were there like program logs and things like that? Because I know when we go back into the 1960s, the uh, requirements of running a broadcast station and and the things you were responsible to log and keep track of were greater than they would turn out to be in the 80s after the Reagan era. Yes, indeed. They they were different. Uh, Yes, and there are program logs. Actually, the program logs were generally required to be filed with the FCC. I mean, they they would request a sampling of logs. Uh, They'd provide a list of dates, and we'd have to copy off our logs to send to them as part of the renewal. Part of your license renewal, yeah. A license renewal. So I've got copies of those from, what are, I was just working on 1965, Hmm. and the license renewal that year has logs. So it's in some cases I have logs for days where I do not have a copy of a program guide, hmm. uh, which it may be of interest only to me. I mean, I think that there there are there is some material um, in 1970. Uh, well, actually, I guess it was 60, in 68. The commissioners decided that. They didn't like the way that Crab had been uh, reviewing programming for broadcast. They'd received complaints about a couple of programs. So you're talking about the FCC commissioners? Yes. Yeah. And so what they had they decided was instead of citing us for something like obscenity or whatever, what what they did is they said instead of renewing your license for three years, that's what the term was back then, was it's only three years, but instead of doing it for three years, we're only going to renew your license for one year. And it was just for a form of punishment mm-hmm. because they were perfectly happy with what our rules were for deciding whether or not a program was appropriate to put on the air. They just didn't think we were following our own rules. Hmm. So this to punish us for that. Do you, do you, do you, can you tell me a little bit more about that? What do you know? What the programming was that was uh, bringing the ire? Oh yes, <laughs> the one program that they were most troubled by was one of uh, the Reverend James Bevel, who was an organizer for uh, CORE, Congress of Racial Equality. Uh, he was speaking before a group in Berkeley and used some language that they objected to. It was nothing in comparison to the language that is used today. It was not none of the uh, seven deadly words. It was just strong language. Mm -hmm. They didn't like it. So... And strong language about about the government, about uh, about racial about, disparity. What he was really speaking to was the issue of people taking control of their lives hmm. you know, and standing up 
to injustice. And this is this is circa 1968, so, so a very uh, tumultuous yeah. time, yeah. pretty much everywhere in the United States. Yeah, I, actually, I think something uh, concerning one taking one's balls in their hands. <laughs> Right, oh, something which, 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 again, you know, to to contemporary ears, uh, fifty years later, it doesn't seem quite as racy as it did then. And I think it might surprise oh. some people to learn how closely the Federal Communications Commission was was monitoring the program output here, because we we don't normally associate the commission paying much close attention except in sort of egregious cases of tremendous amounts of, of profanity or, you know, sort of the, the, the famous uh, Nipplegate uh, Super Bowl broadcast. Right. I mean, you have to understand also that it's like we're talking about KRAB. I mean, I, we, we never had any idea what our listenership was. We used to joke that it might not be anyone. But, I mean, that may be true, I guess, at any radio station. But it's like sometimes the, it was sort of shocking to us what little reaction we got from, from listeners. So it wasn't like a, uh, a Super Bowl broadcast you know, with you know, several million people watching. Uh, it's like you know, we might have 100 listening. Right. Uh, but the FCC, and the day after the broadcast of Bevel's speech, a inspector from the local office, the local FCC office, came up to the station, demanded the tape, and was given it so that he could take it off-site and make a copy. Hmm. So they were paying attention, and they were sort of jumping right on it. And do you know, do you have a sense for why the FCC was paying such particular attention to crab? Is there well, anything in the record the there? Part of the mission, it's it's not really in the record, but it's there. Part of the mission of, of Crab was to be controversial. I mean, it's like in the sense of freedom of speech and providing people with a, a place where issues of controversy can be discussed shouldn't be controversial. I mean, it, it would you'd think it would just be expected that such a thing would be available and provided. And, but that KREB was willing to do that was uh, created its own controversy. You know, Pacifica ran into the same sort of thing, you know, like with at KPFA uh, on several occasions. Uh, where, I mean, it's like, I think of I me mean, that's, it got them as you know as far as the HUAC hearings, uh, the House Un-American Activities Committee. You know, right. We never got that far. In in the case of our license renewal, we appealed. I mean, we said that we thought that the FCC commissioner's decision regarding the short-term renewal was inappropriate. It was going to cost us a great deal of money. I mean, where on, on one hand, licenses themselves for nonprofits or non-commercial stations, then I mean, there were, was no fee, but we had to. I mean, you had to have a communications attorney in Washington represent you, mm-hmm. and this meant inst- that we were going to be paying 
the attorney to review our application and submit it to the FCC once in 1968, and then again a year later. Right. So All that additional a, cost and additional time and energy. Yes. And we knew it was just an arbitrary kind of punishment. So we appealed, got a hearing. Ultimately, that hearing, KRAB was exonerated. Um, hmm. the, the hearing commissioner not only ruled in our favor and said that you know our license should be renewed for the full three years, it's like he said that, that he thought that there should be more stations providing programming like that on KRAB. Huh. That's uh, that's an unexpected outcome, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, yes, it was. Interestingly, years later, that uh, the the administrative law judge became a member of the board of directors for a short period of time. Wow. Yeah. And what you're detailing here to me is this is not just a part of a particular radio station's history, but what we have wrapped up in here is political history because certainly the regulation of the airwaves, especially with regard to speech on the airwaves is a political issue. And it's one which, which represents sort of a a milepost in the evolution of how radio and communication is regulated as well. It's a milepost in sort of the evolution of, of a sort of social history, right? The mores of the time, the, the, the politics of people, as they were on the ground. So not only what happens in, in Washington and not only what happens uh, amongst uh, the elite, but, but, you know, this is a representation of what was happening, you know, in Seattle, uh, you know, and, and in terms of, of people making broadcasts and how that interacts with all of this. And, and I wonder if you can speak a little bit about why you think this is worth your time. Why is this an important thing to do to document all of these artifacts, some of it, you know, would be called ephemera of this radio station. Why, why, should, why should anyone do it? Well, I think that, I mean, in, in a sense, it's I mean, what you were just, just talking about. There's it's this 22-year period of time. It's not enough just to take the programs, the audio, and put them up without some kind of context, without people understanding what was going on in the environment for, that created those programs. So and that's both in the, in the sense of the external events. I've got a sample from a demonstration in Seattle that was against the war in Vietnam, and a demonstration that was the the program itself is is just a small piece because I haven't been able to find the entire program, but it's just a small piece of a of a longer program that was an experiment done at the station. They they sent a team out to cover a demonstration and to try to sort of cover it in a way that wasn't necessarily taking sides, uh, but was trying to be fair to everybody that was at at the site, or I mean, at, at the event. 
So not only, I mean, the demonstrators, but also law enforcement. Understanding the the environment of the times in which the programming was created, the place it was created, and to some degree, the the people that created it. So the program guides help illuminate some of that because they they contain the essays of Lorenzo Milam, who went on in later years. This was his first radio station. He, he went on after, later to be involved in the creation of a number of other what came to be called community radio stations. Indeed, uh, Lorenzo Milam, uh, author of the book Sex and Broadcasting, and the stations that he created or he would help to seed and found, I mean, they were known as the Crab Nebula. Right. <laughs> right. And there's the foundational part right there that comes from KRAB Seattle. Yep. That, that's true. And it's like, I think it's, it's also that, you know, his interest in supporting these, these, it's also this programming. Um, I guess it sounds like I'm focusing on political, but it's in the terms of the examples that I've given. But Crab had a sort of highbrow aspect to it that you don't, you, you didn't see anywhere else in broadcasting. Uh, I guess with the exception of a few sort of odd classical music programs that were syndicated classical music shows. But highbrow in the sense of like poetry was programmed regularly. Readings from literature happened all the time. There were serious discussions about science, the, the scientific method and how you know one applied it and what was going on in science. There was an exploration of ideas that did not just stick to some kind of didactic message, but sort of left it open open to discussion and and thought. And so there were panel discussions that were made up of experts in the subject, but also you know people that were were listeners and were just interested in the subject so they could come in and participate in it hmm. and ask the questions that other listeners that weren't there were unable to ask right i mean what what you're sort of articulating here you know really goes back to the founding of community radio as an idea with KPFA with Pacifica in 1949 mm-hmm. you know and founded by pacifists, people who had been conscientious objectors during World War II. And I know that part of one of the ideals that they were aspiring to in the creation of that first station was to have this sort of free and open exchange, uh, bringing in folks whose views often not heard, especially, of course, in, in, in the 1950s and the 60s on television or radio elsewhere. But also, I mean, coming from many different places on the spectrum, it, it, it was a place where you might hear, you know, someone from the Communist Party debating somebody from the John Birchers, right? And that mm-hmm. they, it, it was not only necessarily from a particular political walk or a particular cultural point of view, but often tried to uh, bring in folks 
with divergent viewpoints, but I think around the idea of having uh, what could pass as a rational uh, discussion. I think that's one of the early values of community radio that is, you know, to some extent also part of its time, which I think is what you what you're kind of pointing out, that we have to take into context the nineteen fifties and the nineteen sixties and even the nineteen seventies as a time when access to a media platform was rare and mostly elite. The ability to be on the radio uh, was uh, much rarer. There was no internet. There, uh, you know, there was not the ability to easily disseminate your views or uh, disseminate ideas in the way that we kind of take for granted, maybe too much now in in the twenty first century. That the ability to speak to to tens or hundreds or thousands of people was something that uh, was out of reach of the vast majority of people and which really was the the kind of ideal that community radio in the form of of crab or kpfa was 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 really trying trying to shoot for i think and and so what you're telling me is that what we you can see some of this in these artifacts that that you've been able to collect both you can hear it in in terms of the the uh audio files themselves the, the the tapes that you've that you've digitized as well as uh see it in 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 other other pieces and what i want to ask you about these you you said early on that you had some small collection uh yourself which is where you began with this project back in in 2012 where has a lot of these things come from you mentioned that you got access to the archives that were held by uh the station's law firm um, have other people sort of come out of the woodwork to share uh, their own sort of private archives? Yes, they have. I've got more tapes now than I know what to do with. Well, I know what to do with them. I just don't, I'm running out of time. And so these are cassettes and reel-to-reel tapes and things like that? Yes. And um, are you archi- are you digitizing these yourself at home? Yes, I am. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've got Three uh, reel-to-reel decks here, a cassette deck, an audio interface, and a computer dedicated to this this project. You are serious. Yeah. There's programming from KREB that's represented in a lot of collections. Not much of it is accessible, however, except what I've put up on the web. Uh, The University of Maryland is the custodian of the NFCB collection. The National Federation um, of Community Broadcasters. Yes. They did a thing. They they had a tape exchange. I don't believe they're doing it now. Well, no, they, of course not. Nobody's using tape anymore. Uh, I think they, they're either distributing it in, over the, the web or or over, a, over satellite. But they... the. University of Maryland has that collection. The Crab Nebula that you mentioned a few minutes ago, it also had a tape exchange back in the 70s. So tapes were being would be produced at one station. If it seemed like something that other stations would be interested in, we'd send it out to the next station. And then they would... I mean, they would send it on to the next and so forth. So it's sort of like a chain letter. I don't even know, don't even know if that's really a, a reference that uh, people, that millennials or people born in the 21st century would even recognize. But you're really talking about the tape. You, you'd have a program. 
you take the reel of tape, you put it in a box, and you send it by uh, the mail, by snail mail, to another station, and he might send it on to somebody else. Right. So many of those tapes I mean, did make the full circle and come back to their originator, but lots did not. And they ended up ending their their journey at one of the stations along the route. So, and some of those early tapes ended up in the NFCB collection. So they were, I mean, I think they were, the NFCB tape exchange probably grew out of the original Crab Nebula. I wouldn't swear to that because I wasn't there, but who is it? Is it Bill Thomas? I think he might have been the one that was doing the tape exchange. Oh, yes, I know Bill because I was at WEFT in uh, Champaign, Illinois, which is uh-huh. the station that Bill helped to found. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that the tape exchange was being run out of Urbana. I think so. Yeah. That I was not there at the time. That was around 1981, 82, when all that began to come together, but, but I'm aware mm-hmm. of that history. These tapes are in collections. Uh, Maryland got a grant to digitize, and I'm hoping to get copies of the KRAB tapes that pop up in their collection. I know that I've seen a preliminary inventory, and there are some that I would really like to hear again. Those are sources that are out there, too. There's also the Jack Straw Foundation, which is the original licensee of KRAB, still exists here in Seattle. They're not involved in radio so much anymore, although I think they've got somebody that produces a radio program for a, another Seattle station every every so often. They have a collection of KRAB tapes, and they've digitized some of those for me. So the tapes come, the programs come in from different places. And so you've placed these all online uh, at your website and people can listen or download them. Have you thought about contributing these assets to a larger archive, whether it be something like the Internet Archive at archive.org? But, or I, do you know if there is a uh, an academic archive? I mean something like what's at the University of Maryland uh, where you might also be able to deposit uh, much of this work you've done? I've – a little of both, uh, in the sense of I've thought about the Internet Archive simply because, I mean, they have a, the credit of redundancy. So I've thought about moving at least the audio portion of what I've done over there. And then in terms of the source material, I mean, some of the tapes that I've got are loaned to me. The owners of them want want to have for some reason they they want them back even though they don't have tape decks and can't hear them but I think just being able to hold it in their hands takes them back to a different time but other a lot of the tape I'm planning on it's like at this point I'm in negotiations with one university Hmm. and I've thought about talking with another museum. It's mostly, for me, unless an institution has the resources to devote to digitizing, I've got to get it digitized before I pass it on. Right. I think, yeah, Um, exactly. It's a labor-intensive 
a process. It takes because you have to do it in real time, right? I have to do it in real time, and when it's done, I have to say, I mean, there are different. The large institutions have a different standard for digitization than I do, and I say that not that mine is better, but my concern is getting it done as fast as possible and getting it accessible as fast as possible. I'm frankly concerned, um, and I don't know whether I'm going to sound like a crackpot here for a moment, but that time is running out for things like this that there's going to be a time when instead of doing this kind of a project, I mean, we're going to be spending our time hunting for fresh water and food. Right. Or even if we talk in sort of more practical matters, tape and these sorts of things, they have a shelf life. They disintegrate and and they become inaccessible after a certain amount of time as well. The equipment stops working. They no longer manufacture reel-to-reel recorders. They no longer really manufacture cassette decks of any quality. So there's also the equipment question. Yeah, I mean, it's like there. Actually, there's a, there's a new uh, reel-to-reel on the market, but it's going to be way out of the range. I mean, it's twenty thousand dollars. Yes, it's priced not for uh, not for you or me. No, well, I don't know who it's priced for. I mean, it's it's the same uh, people who can afford two hundred thousand dollar cars is who it's priced for. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think to your point, though, right? I mean, this has always, I think, been a tension, um, and I, you know, in in archiving. But but you, you see the same tension in radio or in any sort of media production, in video production, and such, right? And that certainly there are organizations that, for very good reasons, want to set a high standard, right? They want things done a particular way, very standardized. Uh, in the best quality possible for, for, for reasons that are very defensible at the same time, those provide barriers to entry, right? The, the BBC has certain standards that it, that it requires from an audio or video producer that maybe you or I may not be able to meet. It means we'll never be producing work for the BBC, but does that mean you or I should never create an audio program or a video program? Does that mean that uh, the, the program I'm creating now that we're creating together should never be on a radio station? And that doesn't necessarily mean that it shouldn't. In an archive, a museum, uh, you know, there are these professional standards and they exist for all sorts of good reasons. But I think to your point, at the same time, if if the tape never gets digitized as a result because uh, it, it never makes it to the top of their queue uh, because there's this long queue of things to be taken care of and only so many uh, person hours to address it, maybe right. it disintegrates or is lost for some reason before it ever gets there. And, and, and so I'm very sympathetic to your approach of well, I want to make sure that at least I get a shot at, at doing my own digitization so that we have – this opportunity that it might be preserved in some form uh, before it gets into somebody else's queue and maybe just never makes it to the top. Yeah. I think there's one other thing I'd want to mention about, about this, this, uh, my approach to getting it done is, is that, I mean, that radio, uh, community radio has become so marginalized um, that 
I'm not convinced about it, its ability to survive. I mean, it's, they've been they've been pushed onto these you know, these ten watt slots. Uh, in some cases, they have hope for increasing their power, but in most, I mean, there, it seems like there's there's very little opportunity for them to expand their coverage area. So we don't really know yet how how they're going to survive in the long run. Um, some are going to figure out ways of doing it. I mean, some have figured out in the past ways of keeping or keeping going. But regardless of that, while they are on the air, what my thought was is that the programming produced at KREB is so diverse and so I mean, it's, it covers such a wide range of subjects and ideas. I didn't think of it so much as something that could, as program, as material that could be used at other radio stations. Although I've been asked sometimes if they could, if some could rebroadcast it, but that it might serve as as an idea base for showing the variety that can be done with radio. And so instead of following sort of models that might seem entertaining in commercial radio, I thought that I could provide ideas that could be used by stations run principally by volunteers, which most of these programs that I'm digitizing were produced by volunteers. And in that sense, it's sort of it's recycling the ideas and kind of keeping the legacy going, and that and that was part of my drive in this whole thing. Well, I for one uh, think that's a great drive, and I really appreciate that you are putting in this work to help both uh, sort of preserve and to share. That instead of all of these things being in your basement or someone's storage unit, you're helping to bring it out onto the internet where in the 21st century, it is accessible to many more hundreds, thousands or millions of people if they so choose. So um, Chuck Range, uh, you are the person behind the crab archives, K R a B F M a community radio station that was on the air in Seattle, Washington from 1962 through 1984. Chuck, uh, where can we find this archive online? www. K R a B archive. One word.com. Easy enough. Um, or, or if you just Google crab radio, Seattle, we do pretty good in the listings. And we'll also have a link in our show notes at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Chuck, thank you so much for spending some time and telling us about your work. Thank you. Paul, thank you so much for recording that interview with Chuck Ranch of the Crab Archive on the web at crabarchive.com. That's crab with a K. Uh, so glad that that material, all of that, that history of community radio in Seattle, Washington, is somewhere where, where everybody can go click on it and give it a listen. I encourage... I encourage anyone listening to Radio Survivor to to dig in and to let us know what you find because uh, it's not endless, but it's enough to keep you busy for a year. 
uh, listening to to that community radio station there. I'm glad that we had a chance to shine a light on what Chuck has been up to there with his archive. And now you are going to update us. It's not just Toys R Us that is going under and this they, week. And yet they are connected. Well, so iHeartMedia, which is the nation's largest owner of radio stations, is not going under. So let's... I'm going to put that aside. They the, changed their name the to The corporation formerly known as Clear Channel. Also known as iHeartRadio for their radio division. They declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy on March 15th. Okay. 2018. 2018. The company has $20 billion in debt. And it's proposing, with its major creditors, to cut that in half down to $10 billion in debt. And the reason we care, again, is because every... Every neighborhood in the country could probably turn on their uh, radio and, and the hear vast majority, more than one station the vast that majority, is owned by yes. this company. Yeah, not every neighborhood. The vast majority can are, are served by an iHeart Media radio station, or two, or, or four. Two. So what's going to happen is they got twenty billions of twenty billion dollars of debt. It's been carrying around. That's a lot. And on February first, the company said, "You know what? We've got a debt payment coming up. We can't make it." We can't make this payment. Mm-hmm. And that started a shot clock, basically a 30-day shot clock that says, well, they got to resolve this. Otherwise, you fall into default. Mm-hmm. When you default on a loan, like when you default on a mortgage, they come for assets, yeah. right? Your, 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 your hand is forced. But that's not what the creditors want to do. They would prefer to work it out. They prefer to get paid, of course. So that brought them to the table to work out a bankruptcy deal. And what they do is they work out a deal, which then they submit to a bankruptcy judge, and a judge views it, talks to the parties involved, approves it, or you know changes are made. But what the major creditors and iHeart are proposing is that they cut the twenty billion dollars of debt in half, down to ten billion dollars. Now they don't just you know they don't want that money just to go away. So what they get in exchange, the creditors, the people to whom they owe money, is they get equity in the company. In fact. They're going to get ninety four percent, wow of of iHeart in exchange for this. Okay. In addition, they will get the outdoor advertising divisions, to, currently known as Clear Channel Outdoor. You all might billboards. see billboards. Yep. Yeah. They're going to own all of that. Okay. Uh, that company, that little division, is not declaring bankruptcy because it's it's mostly profitable. Sure. Now there are a bunch of people who own money, companies that own money. It's called unsecured debt. Uh, that's basically unsecured debt is like when you buy something and you owe somebody some money or a credit card, right? That's unsecured debt, meaning there's no collateral. They can't come and take your house um, if you don't pay your credit card. Um, in this case, there's lots of people that iHeart owes money to that's unsecured. So basically, they owe uh, they owe royalty money, oh. licensing money to major labels. They owe Nielsen a ton of money for rating services. Um, it's like the last bill you pay. They're not sure what where they are in this deal, hmm. whether they'll get their money or how much they'll get. The major creditors are the ones who who lent you know millions and billions of dollars, and of course did so in a secured fashion. Meaning they said, like, if you don't pay us, we are coming for the house. We're going to start seizing assets. As I said, a bankruptcy judge still needs to approve the deal and the uh, debt payment. They said they couldn't make back in February 1st was for $106 million. But while this is going on, CEO Bob Pittman will still earn $2.3 million of bonus every quarter of 2018. He's got a lot on his plate, Paul. 
uh, and on top, that's on top of his salary, which is about $2.65 million. Their presidency and chief operating officer, Rich Bressler, will get a mere $1.3 million a quarter. But his salary is about $3 million a year uh, for, for overseeing this restructuring. So that is what is happening with iHeart. So the big question, of course, is what happens to all these radio stations? What will it sound like in your city or neighborhood when you turn on the radio? To start, you're probably going to hear no change. Because it, it changed in the 90s. It got bad it, already. Yeah, it got bad already, so it will stay bad. What we will probably see is, is if this bankruptcy deal is approved and all these various creditors take ownership, they're likely going to want to liquidate in order to get their money back, right? Mm-hmm. In exchange for this $10 billion, they're getting equity in this company, which is not profitable, right? <laughs> so really what they're buying are the actual assets, which are things like radio stations. Yeah, the licenses for all these stations and all these neighborhoods I keep talking about. Yeah. So putting on you know, my Karnak the Magnificent hat, I think that you know, what we'll start to see is that they, they will liquidate radio stations. They will want to sell them. Yeah, and you might imagine that that means we could put the genie back in the bottle and these radio stations will be locally owned again, but I, I bet you that's not. That's unlikely. What is more likely is that larger, you know, not as large, obviously, as, as iHeartMedia, but other larger radio companies will want to step in and buy them. Ones that are, that are currently more solvent, uh, so probably not Cumulus, which is a number two, which has already declared bankruptcy, uh, but other companies which are currently solvent or at least have uh, financiers willing to give them cash to make the buys. That is probably what we're likely to see. On the periphery there, we have Liberty Media run by, and Liberty Media uh, has a majority stake in Sirius XM satellite radio. Okay, Liberty Media also has a stake in Pandora. Right. It also owns a stake in Live Nation, which is one of the largest concert promoters in the United States. Liberty Media has offered to give iHeart one point one six billion dollars in financing in exchange for a forty percent equity stake in the company. Um. As you'll notice, that uh, you know that doesn't quite add up <laughs> according to the pricing worked out with the creditors. Uh, so it was not followed up on. They lowballed. They lowballed, um, but don't count them out. Don't count them out of working later on after the bankruptcy deal to wanting to get in on iHeart Radio some way or another. Uh, so what we're not likely to see is the destruction of consolidation, just a reshuffling of the deck. We're moving around the deck chairs on the Titanic. And at this point, I think it's important to remember that all of this debt didn't come about because radio is a dying medium. Certainly, radio has more uh, competitors, especially with regard to advertising, now or even 10 years ago than it had in the the mid-90s. Toys R Us didn't go under... Just because kids are now getting their toys on the internet. No, it, and, and the interesting thing, Bain Capital, which, which owns Toys R Us, is, a, is one of the part owners of iHeart Clear Channel. What's important to remember here is that this bankruptcy is not the result of radio failing as a medium. Certainly radio has changed over the last 20 years. There are more competitors for those ad dollars than there used to be back in 1996. 
But really the culprit here is all that debt that Clear Channel took on initially to buy up all these radio stations. Clear Channel, as we know, it did not exist in 1995. It was a small company. It couldn't have owned this many radio stations. It was a deregulation of the 1996 Telecommunications Act that allowed a company like Clear Channel to exist. And they took on massive amounts of debt to do it. And what they thought they could do was buy a lot of stations, fire a lot of people, consolidate operations, and reap profits, right? Lower your costs, and then and then your profits go up. And what they did was everything that you described except the last part. And they well they also they did they, they, they reaped made some profits, profits for years, except as they did that, so did all of their competitors. And what happened to ad prices as everyone did the same thing as they went down and down and down and down, and while the quality of programming yeah. went down and down and the down radio and down. stations that we once enjoyed listening to because uh, people we liked helped run them uh, became shoddy and mediocre because they were run by less and less interesting people or by fewer fewer people, fewer yeah yeah exactly um and so they basically squeezed the life out of radio and this happened of course across the industry at the same time when new competitors offering different if not better options for people came on the scene from satellite radio to internet radio uh on top of the fact that it coincided with the MP3 revolution and people being able to more easily play their own. I music just sheltered in, cars. in my mixtape, yeah, in my little mixtape shed when radio got bad. I was like, I have everything I need on these tapes. But basically, they squeezed the life out of it, over leveraged themselves, and then are left holding the bag. And this is this is now a 22 year legacy, right? That that is, and 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 the piper needs to be paid, and that is what is happening now. Well, Paul, thank you for bringing us an update on the corporation formerly known as Clear Channel, now known as iHeartMedia, and it's continuing uh, floundering as it uh, uh, destroys what we once loved on the radio dial here in the United States of America. You've been listening to Radio Survivor here on uh, either on the internet or on your local radio station. We do appreciate you being here uh, to listen to us. We're online at Radio Survivor. Dot com where you can find show notes for this episode as well as how to support our ongoing efforts to cover the world of non-commercial radio, community radio, college radio, and podcasting that serves communities as well as uh, community media outside of those narrow margins. Uh, we like video too here at Radio Survivor. And we'd love to hear from you. Got any comments about anything we've talked about? Drop us a line. Podcast at Radio Survivor. Thank you so much for spending another hour with us. 